Watson's Walk Institute for Christian Studies. Basically what that means is that I am a missionary to college students in Scranton. I, I pastored a church there for, for quite a while um, in the city limits of Scranton. And uh, later in my life, I got an opportunity to uh, be an adjunct professor at one of our local colleges within the city limits. And I, fell, I fell in love with academia. And I quickly realized that I should not touch that at all while I'm talking. Okay, I quickly realized that um, of the five colleges or universities within the city limits, that there's not one Christian organization on any of them. And some of it, there, there are logical reasons for that. First of all, those five colleges or universities total about 10,000 students. So pick any UW campus, and it's probably smaller than, than any of those. And certainly, you take the main campuses, it's much, much larger. I, I live just a little over an hour from the State University of New York at Binghamton, also known as SUNY Binghamton, but it's actually in my hometown of Vestal, and we're not bitter about that at all, but whatever. Um, there are 20,000 students there at, at that university alone. So um, it's, it's not a big place. Uh, Scranton itself only has about 76,000 people in it. That population has been decreasing since 1900. Um, but it, it, is, it is an old blue-collar coal mining town. And so none of those schools are really big enough for organizations like Crew, InterVarsity, uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Campus Bible Fellowship, you might even be familiar with, or Ratio Christi, to actually try to get involved. Um, the two largest of the five schools, and I've taught at both of these, are both Roman Catholic schools, and those schools will work very hard to keep any non-denominational student ministry group off campus. Whether they can do that actually legally or not, who knows, but they're going to make it very, very difficult for those groups to do that. So I recognized that this was an unreached people group, these 10,000 college students that are almost literally in my backyard, and no church is really doing anything to reach them, um, not because they don't want to, but if you know anything about college ministries in churches, it's really all about proximity, and proximity means you're across the street. Uh, and if you're not, the students are not going to attend that, that church. I don't care what kind of program you have, unless you're busing them over there. Uh, I do have a, a church, a supporting church, that's right across the street from Binghamton University, and they actually do bus kids over during the school year. I joke with them, they have the last viable bus ministry in New York State, um, because they do. But just because a church wants to be involved with a campus doesn't mean that they can be, and they certainly have no right just to show up on campus and start doing the thing they can try but they'll get they'll get kicked off so I learned pretty pretty late about an organization called a Christian study center which is a relatively new model of engaging with college students and um, I had gone back to school to study philosophy I was working on my my doctorate at um, Biola University and I started realizing oh this is something we could do so I started praying to God and saying, hey, there's all these kids who need to know you and don't know you here in Scranton. Why don't you do something about it? And as you can imagine, God's response was something like, well, dummy, why don't you do something about it? Because 
I think you have degrees in Bible theology and philosophy. You have 25 years of youth ministry experience. And, Andy, you live four blocks from the University of Scranton. Yeah, that, okay. I, I guess maybe I should do something. So in 2014, we launched uh, Addison's Walk Institute for Christian Studies, and we have been involved with that ministry ever since. So we're a, we're a 501c3. We're supported like missionaries. Um, my main in with the students is through the classroom. I'm an adjunct professor of philosophy at the University of Scranton, so I have access that those other organizations would really die for. I have unfettered access to the students for th at least three hours a week. Downside is I cannot publicly invite them to anything, and I have to be very careful with that kind of stuff because we are not, I have no official institutional relationship with any school just because of the organization. I have a relationship with the school because I have a little piece of plastic in my pocket that says faculty on it, and, and that gets me through a lot of doors, literally. So if you'd like to know more about the ministry, we do have some stuff on the display out there, and I'm certainly in between Sunday school and church. I'd love to answer your questions, and I, I can hang out. I'm in no hurry. I am going over to the Andrew Meisner's home for lunch, and I'm expecting that to be stellar. So I, I'm, I don't want to be here all afternoon either, but I, no, seriously, I will stay and, and talk with you. Um, is there going to be fried things there, Andrew? What in the world? Okay. Cheese, no fried cheese curds? No, I, I, I've had plenty. I had, I had some last night. That's all I need. Um, everybody's like, how much cheese are you going to eat when you go to Wisconsin? Well, about as much cheese as I eat when I'm not in Wisconsin. I'm not going to, I'm 50 years old. There's certain things you just don't do. Okay. So for Sunday school, here's what I'd like to do. Um, and I know this is being recorded today. And uh, I, I just asked Pastor that if this gets posted to your website, do not make it searchable by my, my name. Um, because there are people and powers at play in the university that do not want me there. They tried to get me fired just a couple years ago. And what I'm about to tell you is going to make them, make them very unhappy. What I would like to do is I, I, I want to walk you through the ideas, the ideas that are hunting the faith of our students, all students. Now, as I say that, you're categorizing what I'm saying. That's how the human mind works. It's really an amazing thing. This is one of the things we talk about in philosophy class. So you're categorizing it. You're thinking, okay, so he just talked about something on the hunt. There's something prowling. He said it's ideas, and he said it's, it's hunting our children our kids, surely he only means kids that are wild enough to go to UW-Madison. No. Oh, it, they're there. Make no mistake, of course. But I mean all of them. Unless your children you have successfully completely isolated from the features and um, uh, demanding issues that we find in our culture, unless you've completely insulated and isolated them, which I don't know anybody in this century who actually is trying to do that, and if you try, you are going to fail. There's no way. So there are, there, there are forces that are at play that are affecting all of our kids. And the statistics about students that identify as Christians, there have been studies done and I will tell you, the studies done are very broad. 
um, among students that identify as Christian. So we are talking groups that would be considered Orthodox in the Orthodox tradition, Greek and Russian, Protestant, of which we would belong, and Roman Catholic. So the, the, um, the, the study is quite broad, and that's, that's, that's okay. You need, you need to actually be okay with that and realize that there are born-again people outside of, of your normal circles. So, um, of those people, of those three groups, it, is, it has been studied that 75% of all students who identify as Christian in high school, 75% once they get to college will abandon their faith. Three out of four. One, two, three, four. Of those four, statistically, three of you, when you leave for college or leave home just to work, three of you will abandon your faith. That should scare the living daylights out of you. Now, there is an elephant in the room that is uh, theological. Because you might be thinking, well, Andy, do you actually think someone can lose their salvation? Well, I am a Romans 8 guy. Um, Neither height nor depth nor anything in all of creation can separate me from the love of God, right? I'm also a Jesus guy who said, if you deny me on earth, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. I've also read Hebrews. Now, there are different ways to interpret the book of Hebrews. Is whoever wrote that book merely speaking hypothetically about a falling away? I don't think so. Um... So, all I'm saying is that I haven't come to a concrete, full-on, this is what I'm going to hold to position about losing, losing salvation. Now, I've heard many pastors say one of two things. Well, they weren't really saved in the first place, okay? That is possible for some people, but I also look back at the 2,000 years of church history, and you're going to tell me every time people are lined up to lose their heads for the name of Christ and the, and the people who actually step away... Every time, say, no, no, I think I like my head attached where it is and deny Christ every single time they weren't saved in the first place? Statistically, I just, I can't, I can't get around that. Um, so, so if that's the case, it's really not a big deal. But, but it is a big deal. And over the past couple years, in particular, there have been high profile, the word is deconversions, of people, people that you may know, um, people who were thought leaders within uh, Christian circles, uh, some very, very famous people who have very publicly deconverted, or the other word is deconstructed. Well, why is that happening? Just because they get to college and they decide, I ain't going to do this no more? Well, not really. I, I want to I talk to you about the three forces that are in play, and again, I, I don't know how these are going to look on these slides, so they might be totally goofed up. Um, but we're going to talk about uh, these things. And okay. So every college or university on the planet is attempting to specifically shape their students. The question is into what, into who or what and by what means. Every college or university on the planet is attempting to shape their students. The question is into who or what and by what means. Um, whether it be University of Wisconsin, 
uh, Madison, whether it be Cedarville University, whether it be Marquette, I don't care what school it is, Clark Summit University, where I have three degrees, every school is trying to shape your students, and the question is, what tools are they using to do so, and, um, and what are they going to look like when they're done? So, you know, you have schools now, you have universities, I'm sorry, you have universities now who are doing things like they're taking the, that, that entire group of academics called the humanities and they're getting rid of them. History, English, literature, religion, philosophy. We don't need that because science is going to save the day. So we have the rise of STEM. If in the academic world I was teaching, excuse me, I was teaching in the STEM world, I would be a full-time professor with my credentials uh, because they would need me so badly. Uh, but because I teach in the humanities, we ain't got time for that. So it's getting pushed out. But this idea that technology is going to save us, and by the way, that was the idea um, that most of the world, particularly North America and Western Europe, shared together prior to the days of August 1914 and, and launching World War I. The idea was technology was going to save us. They were wrong. It, it did not. Um, so there's this whole idea of, of what is shaping our students. Uh, all right. Do I have to press it twice or I'm just not pointing at the right thing? Okay. The shaping, the shaping elements for our students, I like to think of as a hammer and anvil. Now, the anvil I'm going to think of is probably the thing you're going to think of, and that would be the licentious lifestyle that's available to every college student. Well, wait a minute, my kid goes to Maranatha, or Bob Jones, or Pensacola, or Cedarville, or Grand Rapids. They don't have a licentious lifestyle. Um, yes, they do. They're just harder to find. They're a little harder to find. It existed back in the dark ages when I attended Baptist Bible College, now Clark Summit University. I was just too dumb to look for it. I didn't, I didn't know. But it's, it's there, right? Um, and even when I'm speaking to, to groups and they say, okay, so you minister to students, tell us about what your students are like. And I think a lot of people have this picture in their mind that the average college student is some kind of uh, horrible alloy made up of a Tasmanian devil and a drunken Viking, and somehow they've been joined together and set loose on a college campus. There is that. Uh, yes, that does happen, but to be honest, I never see that in my classroom. Um, what I see in my classroom is, is a group of very respectful students who are working really hard to demonstrate their respect for me, for each other, and for the content. Now, what they do on the weekends, that's a totally different story, but they are there and they are trying to learn. Now, the University of Scranton, the University of Scranton has um, a really good food service program. Like, it's the marriage supper of the lamb every day for those kids. I am not kidding. Best college food I've ever seen in my life. I would be so embarrassed to take someone from there to my alma mater and have them eat. It would be just awful. So, because they spend so much on food, the university also spends some money on nutritionists. They hire people because they want to make sure kids are eating what they're supposed to eat. I was talking to one of these nutritionists not all that long ago, and she told me they have figured out there's a good number of students who eat 
just enough calories during the week to stay alive because they're banking them up to drink them on the weekends. I didn't believe it. I thought, no. First of all, who's got that much time on their hands to stop and think about how many calories do I need to function, let alone thrive? And then how do I figure out how many calories can I drink so that I don't you know, put on tons of weight or whatever? And I asked one of my classes, mind you, the classes that I teach are usually freshmen and sophomores, so I have at most 19, 20-year-olds in there. And I floated this idea, and I said, this can't possibly be true. And they're all giving me this big dopey grin. I'm like, so this is really a thing? Yeah, Andy, this is, this is really a thing. Okay. Um, and that's all that we said about it, but stuff like that. So you understand the licentious nature of, of, of those things. Um, just if, if you want to get an idea of, of what that is, some of it is even school-sponsored. Like, um, it, I, I, there, there's younger kids in the room, so I need to be careful what I say, but even look up, um, Pastor, I'm sorry, but look up the Ohio State University and one of their major activities that happens in the fall, I think. You will be aghast if you don't know what's happening there. It's that, that, let's just say these would be things in the Old Testament that would get you stoned. And I mean the old-fashioned way, not, not with herbs. I mean, like, the old-fashioned way, right? P pretty bad. It's at every university. Um, just some, it's, it's out naked in, in front of everybody. But the hammers, so what are the hammers? Are the hammers just people coming at you saying, ah, you're a Christian, blah, blah, blah? No. If you're a Christian and you're just a nice person, you're really going to get left alone, particularly if you don't say anything. I have a whole series that I've done in Daniel chapter 1 and 2. It's called A University Experience. I look at the lens, I look at the modern university through the lens of Daniel. D did you not know that Daniel 1 and 2 is a major university passage in the Bible? Come on, think about it. You have four boys forced <laughs> to enroll at the University of Babylon, King's College, probably the Hammurabi School of Wizardry, I made that up. Um, there's a meal plan. Come on. Yep, yep. There's ID cards. Ashpenaz is like the dean of students, right? So, um, and, and by the way, with those boys, we, we say, well, basically, our, our thought is, well, Daniel and those boys just, they managed to keep their head down and cling to their faith. No, the, the amazing thing about those boys is that they had. Um, they had a very high-profile public witness for God in a hostile environment. They didn't keep their mouths shut and took their lives in their hands multiple times. And so the hammers came after them. So what do the hammers look like in the modern university? Well, it's going to involve three 19th century thinkers that you've probably heard of before. And if you spent any time in church, and as I look around the room, I see at least some Gen X aged people in the room. Can I, can I get a witness, you Gen Xers, where are you at? I'm the only one. I don't believe it. Thank you. What in the world, there's only two Gen X people in the room? Or did... Huh? You, know what the Gen X is. you don't know what Generation X means? I grew up, I grew up in the 80s. Okay. All right. Anyway, um, so you'll know, you'll know what these names 
you'll know what these names are. So, Charles Darwin. Now, generally Charles Darwin, we think of as kind of not being on the gospel bus, uh, not being part of us because of what? Evolution. What if I were to tell you evolution is not the problem? Now, please do not heat the tar and pluck the chickens yet. Hear, hear me out. I am not an evolutionist. But evolution, to be very frank, happens. Microevolution happens. How many species of dogs do you think Noah had on the ark? Well, how about that? Where did all the other wee <laughs> bitty dogs come from? I, I didn't hear that. I, I, I don't know where all the other wee bitty dogs came from. Well, perhaps he shouldn't have had Buckeyes on the, on the, on the ark either. Um, so he had one, right? So like we understand the breeds come from one. Now, clearly there's a problem when you start talking about macroevolution, and that's jumping from kind to kind. That's like fish becoming bird. That's a different story altogether. But if we're talking about adaption, uh, I'm looking around the room, and most of you have adapted for the weather today. You know, you're, you're wearing lighter clothes than I would imagine, because this, this part of Wisconsin gets really cold, doesn't it? Like winter really hangs out here for a while. So, um, so you, you've adapted. So yes, evolution is a problem, and if you, just, if you look at Darwinian evolution and you say, all right, is, is, that, is that, could that be an explanation as to why organisms have complex um, uh, systems that, that put them together. Well, the fact of the matter is, could God have used some kind of evolutionary process if he wanted to? You're, you might be afraid to say so, but the answer is absolutely. Of course he could. Now, theologically and philosophically, there are a couple problems. Um, actually, there's more than just a couple. For instance, we have to start then asking, well, where then does consciousness come from? Because it's impossible for that to be a part of an evolutionary process, because that would mean something material made something immaterial. And if that happens, like if this lectern develops a consciousness in the next few minutes, run. That's bad, because we are now at either the zombie apocalypse or the rise of the machines kind of scenario, and it's not going to be good for anybody. Um, so it, that's... that's it's not evolution that's the problem. Um, I'm just going to go through this. And again, I'm sorry, that should have showed up better. Uh, what is the makeup of prime reality? So, th so there are some questions involved, some worldview questions. A worldview are the lenses through which we perceive reality. Everybody does it. Everybody has a way that they're perceiving reality. Um, and... So one of the questions that we have to deal with when it comes to Darwin is to say, well, well, what is the actual makeup out there? It, so this is, this is a question saying, is the physical universe all that there is, or is there something else? Now, if Darwin's right, this is the only process that we could have. This is the only one that matters. There can be no creation out of nothing ex nihilo if there is no God. That would be impossible. So logically... Um, evolution makes sense. But he's asking, it, it, what is the makeup of prime reality? And the answer is that there's no who behind it. It's only a what. Right? 
So those of us who've spent any amount of time in church, Sunday school, if we say, and we're talking about kind of the forces that move things, and you were talking about that, you're going to talk in language of who, personality, as in God being a person, as opposed to a what, right? He only has a what, and his what is called biomechanical determinism. Now, this is a big word for Sunday morning, I get it, but that's okay. Biomechanical determinism. What that means is, if he's right, the worldview behind it, which necessitates evolution, because there is no other option, but if he's right, what that means is that you and I, along with any other living entity on the planet, are nothing more than machines that bleed. That's it. That's what biomechanical means. A machine that bleeds, right? So, you might be thinking, well, big deal. So what? I'm a, I'm, I'm a biomechanical machine. All right. Understood. But what do you do with machines that wear out over and over and over again? Trash them. Or you recycle them. Or they don't turn out right the first time. Trash them. Some of you in this room, maybe, perhaps, were forced to read books like Brave New World, either in high school or in college by a guy named Aldous Huxley. Um, it is a dystopian book, usually spoken in terms alongside of the book 1984, um, or Animal Farm, same, same, um, same genre. So anyway, in, in that book, um, in a distant, not too distant time from now in the future, uh, people are decanted, they aren't procreated, they're, they're made in factories and they are they're predetermined to be and to do what they're supposed to be and to do. Um, there are levels. And when they get old and worn out, they go back and they get recycled for parts. Nobody knows that. They just think that they get to live out their days in this glorious splendor, but, th but they actually get recycled. Um, that, that's what biomechanic, biomechanical determinism is, and that's what our students get hit with all the time. So they get hit with this idea, well, no, there is no who behind everything. It's a what, and what's don't make decisions. They're right about that. What's don't plan anything. Only a who, a person, can. What's can't. Not, no matter how sentient um, the being is, like some kind of chimpanzee or something like that, they still can't make a plan to carry it out. Um, so with Darwin... Our students are then told it is a fantasy that you actually think that there's some great being out there who actually has you in mind, and they will be told, if you think that, that has got to be about the most arrogant thing that you have ever considered. And, and there are very prominent atheists right now who say things like that. And they will tell them with very... Um, Straight faces, they will say things like, oh yeah, human consciousness, because actually, just do a little experiment with me. Stop and think about the fact that you're thinking. Think about that you are thinking right now. Right? You can, you can actually think about being that you're thinking. That's called being conscious. That's, that's being a sentient, conscious being. You're, you're aware of yourself. You're self-aware. Right? And so even the atheist will say, yeah, that's pretty a big deal. Well, being self-aware, is that material or, or immaterial? Well, it might be immaterial, but it's just a part of the evolutionary process with a straight face. You don't need a God for that. And kids go, oh, okay. And they accept it and they move on. 
So number one, Uncle Chuck. Then there's this guy, Friedrich Nietzsche. You've heard of him? Yes? yes. 1904, uh, or 1844, 1900, and he's not on the gospel bus because he said famously, God is dead. Yep, famously he said God is dead, and he is famously known as the 19th century uber-atheist, and you are not wrong. Okay? Um, he's like full-on leveling both barrels at Christianity. Darwin wasn't quite so hostile um, directly, but his ideas were used later on um, for, for some other things, and I'm going to show you that here in just a minute. So Nietzsche, um, Nietzsche was a guy that really hated Christianity, and he had a distinct break with Christianity. We know that his break came somewhere around 1864, and he wrote a letter to his sister, and he said to her, look, if you want to just have an ease of life and nothing's ever going to bother you, then just believe. But if you want to investigate what life really means, then you're going to have to think, and you're going to have to leave that believing life behind. So he was actually one of the first people that tried to draw a line between those who believe in God and those who have reasons about God. And by the way, there is no divide. If you've ever tried to explain why you believe in God, guess what you're doing? Philosophizing. You're, you're giving reasons. Um, and to actually say that belief needs no reasons is actually a godless proposition. You will find that nowhere, anywhere in Scripture. So it is, it is Nietzsche that started doing stuff like this. And there's a couple books, if you really want nightmares, there's a couple books that you could read. Uh, before going to bed at night, Beyond Good and Evil and On the Genealogy of the Morals. So in these two books, Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche who famously said, God is dead and, and you have killed him, is going to lay out his idea of what he thinks needs to happen. Now, Nietzsche did indeed say those things, but we rarely know uh, at the popular level where he said them or why. Well, there's a couple books. One of them famously was a work of fiction that he wrote called Thus Spoke Zarathustra. It's just fun to say. Any excuse I have to say that, I will. Uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Um, and what he's talking about in that book is the fact that very Christian Europe, because as you can imagine, in 19th century Europe, most Europeans could have the basic Sunday school conversation about God. Right? 200 years ago, commonplace. You know, anybody's house in Northern Europe, Western Europe that you walk into, whether they be more of a Protestant country, like, say, Germany or um, the Netherlands or France or Spain, being Roman Catholic or Italy, doesn't matter. It wouldn't be all that odd for them to say grace before a meal or to talk about going to church and having a family that's centered around that. That, that would be very common. But there's nothing going on in Europe in the 19th century, and that is the explosion of industry and all these discoveries. And basically, Western Europe is living within the chalk outline shell of Christianity, and it doesn't mean anything to them anymore. And you have, you have guys like Nietzsche coming along, and they're pointing that out. Say, like, you say you believe something, but here's what I see. And they don't really go together. And it, it's kind of brilliant that he does stuff like that. So he's speaking into institutionalized Christian Europe. And he's trying to wake them up 
because he's saying, I don't think this is going to work for anybody. And so here's what he does. In these two books, he tries to, um, he tries to separate a couple of ideas. And in there, and again, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to tell you what they'll say because it just didn't translate over to PowerPoint. Um, there, there's going to have to um, uh, be a different way of looking at stuff. So Nietzsche, in, in those two books that I told you about, he said, here's how we need to look at morality. Here's how we need to look at morality. We have the classical slash Judeo-Christian view of good. Most people still are going to have that idea of good. All right, so how many people in this room remember 1977 and going to see Star Wars for the first time? Okay, there we go. All right, I was five years old, and I was not allowed to go to the movie theater. Um, uh, all those years growing up, but boy, I knew everything I could know about Star Wars because the first time I heard Jedi, I was instantly drawn in. And, as, and if you were anything close to my age, men, you probably experienced somewhat the same thing. Like, what is this? This is so cool. So I want to know everything about it. Um, so, Star Wars, 1977, A New Hope. Who are the good guys? Mm hmm. The Rebels. Why? Well, they're pulling the status quo, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're never told why they're actually good. Uh, we found out in um, Rogue One that they are not. That is correct. They're actually murderers. Yep. They, they are not. But, but we are led to believe that they're good. N Nietzsche would have had a field day with that. Because they're good simply, and the presentation is because they're standing up to the power. Standing up to the man, right? And I'm, I'm a bit of an imperial sympathizer because they're bringing order to the galaxy. Okay, they shouldn't have blown up Alderaan. I get that. But, but they're actually bringing order to the galaxy, right? So Nietzsche would say, okay, yeah, what you see in the hero cycle of Star Wars is the basic Judeo-Christian slash classical view of good. That the, the underdog is noble because he or she is standing up to the power over them. And he said, this is how we've always operated. Um, in the classical world, which really got exasperated, according to Nietzsche, in the, in the Jewish world, and then finally was completely ruined by Christianity, is how he explains it. And so he asks the question, is this making culture stronger or weaker? And he said, it's making it weaker. So, um, we need to reverse it. And he said, now there are only three things that we need to worry about. Um, power, um, infinite time, and um, untethered morals. So, power, infinite time, and untethered uh, morals. So Nietzsche would say, who or what is behind human history? Um, 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 Charles Darwin, Darwin would say, who or what is behind human history? Well, it, it's just a, a biomechanical determinism. Nietzsche would answer that question, it is power, raw power that doesn't need to be attached to anything. 
And this power goes around and around in circles in time. If we had time, I could share with you so many pop culture um, illustrations that would show you that Nietzsche is everywhere. His influence is everywhere. It is all over in the music, the TV shows, and the movies that many of you in this room watch. Um, also is Darwin. Uh, I could explain that to you as well. Like, so much everywhere. So he would say that it's power that just goes around infinitely in circles, and we need to um, untether morals from any divine anchorage. So when he says God is dead, he's not saying we need to storm the gates of heaven and actually slay God. He's saying no, the idea of God where is where he always should be. Dead, buried, in the casket. And therefore, if there is no God, then morality can be whatever you want it to be. Woe unto him who declares evil good. Think of the world in which you live in, and if you pay attention and you don't live under a rock, and you watch the news once in a while, in the past couple years you've asked yourself, what is going on? Right there. In the 19th century, his ideas would have been very radical. It's actually very radical to hold to those classical Judeo-Christian values now. Your students are being told in their classrooms, uh, particularly in secular campuses, to reverse what they've always known. And it's very powerful. The last one, and I'm going to go through this really fast, is Karl Marx. Now, Karl Marx was an enemy of my generation. I grew up during the Cold War, and so we, we were always afraid that you know, nuclear annihilation was right around the corner. I remember when the made-for-TV movie The Day After came out, I was scared to death because I thought we were all going to die in a nuclear holocaust. Um, turned out it didn't happen, and in my lifetime, I actually saw the fall of the Soviet Union, and I never thought I would see that. Um, so Karl Marx... Um, we, we associate Karl Marx with communism, as we do, we associate Nietzsche with atheism and Darwin with evolutionism. And that's really true. But the problem with Marx here is that unlike the other two, unlike full-on Darwin and Nietzsche, or, or excuse me, yes, Darwin and Nietzsche, and, and they have wormed their way into very many Christian universities, and, and I'm talking about Christian universities that aren't really, you know, all that strict or all that conservative with their theology. Um, I would say at Clark Summit University, they have not hired any Nietzschean or Darwinian professors um, on purpose. Maybe they have snuck in under the radar, but they haven't. However, the worldviews of this guy are really everywhere and they're in our churches. Um, it, is, it is from Marx that we get ideas such as, you've probably heard this before, critical theory or critical race theory. These are all anchored in the mind of Karl Marx. I do not have time. If you would like to discuss the history of this, I've actually studied it, and I know from w where it comes from. Um, this, this is, and in those things, we'll look at a group of people, and, and I'm, as I'm making a quick scan of this room, 
Um, some of those things that I just talked about, like critical race theory, would say that because of the skin color of every person in this room, we think a certain way. That's actually a racist statement, by the way. Okay, thank you. Um, that's, that's a racist statement. Um, and that's just the beginning. So this is a problem, and this is the one. The, the other two are just kind of matter of course in, in the curriculum. This is the thing your students are going to be sat down, particularly if they go to, say, a UW school, they're going to be sat down and they're going to be asked on the first day, are you an oppressed or are you an oppressor? Now, for me, I, I have no chance. I'm white, I'm male, I'm a father, I'm married, I, I believe in binary sexuality, I'm done. Um, I own a house. I mean, it's in Scranton, but still, I own a house. Um, I am the patriarchy that needs to be torn down. So, um, within Marx, see, Marx, Marx worms its way, it's been in the universities for a long time, because the guys that pushed these ideas in Germany after the Russian Revolution, I don't know if you know this, but there was attempted revolts similar to uh, the 1917 revolution in, in Russia, in Germany, and Italy. They didn't work. And the forward thinkers in this movement realized that the global economic revolution that they wanted was not going to happen. They realized that was not going to happen. So they started trying to figure out ways that they could push their ideas without the economics. And these guys lived in Germany and they fled Germany with the rise of fascism and they went to places like Switzerland, but you know where they went after that? Here. And you know what they did for a living? Professors. Berkeley, Columbia, places like that. That's where they went. So, so they started teaching, and it's been taught for generations in, in our country and around the world um, about this stuff. And, and there, there are some hallmarks about Marxism that sound good to Christians because it sounds like within Marx that they're trying to raise up the victim but it's actually Christian heresy. A heresy is any orthodox belief that gets twisted. That's what a heresy is. And Marxism is a heresy, and I'm going to tell you why. First of all, there's no redemption in Marx. None. There's nothing I can do to be redeemed from being a, an old white guy. And what is expected of me is to um, merely say that I am wicked and claim that, yes, I'm part of the problem, I'm not. So that's one heresy. Second heresy is that it's a violation of thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. I know pastors who have stood in front of their congregations and say, you all need to repent of your racism. You've got to be kidding me. Now, are there racists in our world? Of course there are. And if you see that, what is your job? You step in. That is, that is your responsibility, right? Absolutely. Mine too. Um, and the, the third one is that it ruins the biblical idea of a scapegoat. You understand the principle of a scapegoat, don't you? you? Do you know that that's not just a biblical idea? That's, that's part of the ancient world. 
So in, in Christianity and in Jude, Judaism as well, um, we have pity for that, that animal. Because in the Judeo-Christian worldview, is that animal guilty of anything or innocent? Innocent. So we have compassion for the victim. Right? We, we have compassion. Um, not Mark's. See, Marx reverts back to the ancient world that has a scapegoat. They're, they're in Greek myths all over the place, too. And those scapegoats, there's always something wrong with them. They deserve it. And in, in the ancient mythical world, um, any culture would just like, get worked up so badly that they're going to have to pour their anger and their violence onto something or someone and it's always someone or something that deserves it. Now, without naming names, in the past two years, there have been scapegoats. And I'll let you use your own imaginations to think about it. So, um, these three ideas, these three ideas um, hunt down the faith of our students, and they're contributing to the massive deconversion that we're seeing in classrooms. So, uh, me and people like me were actually trying to do something about that, um, stand at the edge and hold them back. I wish I had more time to explain more of this to you, but I know we are out. So, Pastor Andrew, somebody, okay. Thank you, Andy. You're welcome.